This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Tonight we begin with Lights Out. This is the witching hour. It's an hour when dogs howl and evil things are let loose on a sleeping world. Want to hear about it? Then turn your lights out. (laughs) Well, Lights Out debuted in 1934 and was radio's premier horror series. Director and writer Willis Cooper's writing was characterized by grisly stories, always matched with the appropriate acting and sound effects. He conceived in 1933 that idea of writing a dramatic midnight mystery serial catchy enough to catch the listener's attention at a time when the competition was mostly airing music. It was, however, dropped in favor of an anthology emphasizing crime thrillers and the supernatural. He stayed with this program till 1936, June of that year, when another Chicago writer, Arch Obler, took over. And by the time Cooper left, the series had inspired about 600 fan clubs. Think of that, 600 fan clubs. Arch Obler, well, he was eccentric and ambitious when he took over, and he pretty well picked up where Cooper left off. And although Lights Out would be closely associated with Obler later on, he would always credit Willis Cooper as the series creator and spoke highly of him as the unsung pioneer of radio dramatic techniques and the first person he knew who understood that radio drama is an art form. And now to tonight's episode, The Sea. Ironized Yeast presents Lights Out. Everybody. It is later than you think. Lights Out brings you stories of the supernatural and the supernormal, dramatizing the fantasies and the mysteries of the unknown. We tell you this frankly, so if you wish to avoid the excitement and tension of these imaginative plays, we urge you calmly but sincerely to turn off your radio now. This is Arch Ovaler. One of the bleakest places outside of Hitler's heart, they say, is the island of Iran just off the coast of Ireland. The wind wails and the waves fight the bleak cliffs, and death is as close as the sea. And now, lights out. Everybody. I... I I know. It's Diane I am, Father Donahue. 
And old as I am, I'm not ready to die. And you... Ah, come closer, Father, and hear my miserable confession. You know me as a good woman of the village. Yet uh, I've heard what you say. There's no finer old woman in all the islands than the widow than Nell. Ah, but that's not so, Father Donahue. And if I'm to meet all my old friends in the island of paradise, then hear me out and pray for me. You know, my sons, Thomas and Patty, born on the same cold winter's night they were. And the firstborn, Thomas, was as good as an angel in paradise. But the second, the one I named Patty, was evil from the moment he took his first breath of God's good air. It was Thomas that carried the load of the family on his back, fishing from early to late. But Patty... Ah, oh, that's rake. Drinking and brawling and running from work as if the devil himself was pulling him away. I pray to the good God every night that some goodness come into the man's heart. But with every year he grew worse, stealing what his crooked tongue couldn't talk away from honest men. Ah, but his brother Thomas, he repaid me for all the trouble. A good boy. And when he came to me with the word that he was to marry Eileen, the heart in me sang, for the good God always meant for the two of them to be together. Ah, oh, how I remember the day of the wedding, the sun shining, and the sky and the sea smooth as a baby's cheek. I was a happy, little known of the horror of what was to come. Ah, oh, it was a happy morning. So Oh, listen to the mother. Did you ever hear a happier sound in all creation? Why shouldn't they be happy, Thomas? It's not every day that such a blessed marriage comes in the islands. Ah, the prettiest girl in all the blaskets waiting to be your bride as soon as the sun starts setting. My bride. Uh, oh, mother, that's a grand word. I'm happy for you, my son. I wonder where Patty can be. Patty? Yes, he isn't around. Do you know where he is? Oh, that's right. It'll be a better wedding without him. Oh, no, mother, don't say things like that. After all, he's your son and my brother. Oh, you're a sorrow in my heart as he's drinking and brawling. Paddy, you did come. Speak of the difference. And why shouldn't I be here? There's an honest stranger said a welcome at your wedding. Oh, no, Paddy, that's not the way to talk. There's food and drink and... No, wait a minute. I've got more important things to do than to be filling me belly. Listen to me, Brother Thomas. Is your head that full of weddings that it can't hear the chance of making us all richer than a Yankee? What do you mean? Yes, speak up, Paddy. What devilment are you up to now? Devilment nothing. It's honest money I'm, I'm talking about. And made the next pipes and tobacco be at me on wake if I'm not telling you the truth. I'm listening, Paddy. Let's hear what you have to say. Do you remember the hulk of a ship that was wrecked off in East Nabra a bit ago? Well? Well, I went there yesterday to see if there was anything worth having. Oh, listen to me, brother. In the bottom of a pool no deeper than this room is lying enough bolts of copper and brass to make you and me the richest men on the island. What? Ah, you can believe your ears. Wouldn't you rather bring the bride a pocketbook filled with gold sovereigns and the empty leather you've got now? Oh, but, Paddy, I... Ah, I wish you, Mother, you talk to the men. But if it's in the sea, it'll wait until after the wedding. Oh, wait, will it? And with those Inish boats sailing out around the place, I tell you, it's now or never. And may my soul to the devil if I'm not saying true words. Well, Thomas, it would be nice to have a bit of money in the house. Yes. Uh, then what are you waiting for? 
You've got a boat big enough to handle the stuff, and I'll be there to help you. And in three hours, you can be back here dancing. Oh, it's Irene. Let her have the word whether you stay or go. Stay or go where, Mother Dinell? What's going on, Thomas? Well, uh, you see, Eileen... Ah, you're the day short. Let me say it. Eileen, there's a fortune in brass and copper bolts waiting for us in water no deeper than a man's neck over off Innis Nablow. And Tommy here thinks you'd be fool enough to say no to his going. But... But must he go now? The sea doesn't wait. He'd be back in three hours, Eileen. Yeah, I just think, Eileen, you'd have a dress for every day of the week. Thomas, do you want to go? We could build a new house with the money. Mother Donnell, do you think Thomas should go now? I mean, with all them out there? Well, we're so poor, and Thomas, young as he is, so worn and weary from work. Maybe this is God's blessing, a gift from heaven for putting our faith in him who watches over all of us. God's blessing is right. A hundred pounds... And we'll be the kings of the island. Come on now. We can take the side path down to... Cl- Wait, brother. Eileen, is it your wish? I'd be a poor wife to you, Thomas. If I stood in your way of making a living before our marriage. My darling. Ah, there'll be time enough for that now when we get back. Come on, Thomas. Let's get out of here. Hurry back to me, my dearest. The sea will take me to our good fortune and the sea will bring me back. Uh, out this way, Thomas. Come on, hurry up. Yeah, I'm coming. Until the wedding, darling. God, go with you. Thomas! Yes, yes. I'll be back in three hours, mother. As rich as a Yankee. Bye. Oh, Eileen. Oh, little baby, why should you cry? Thomas has proud the sea so many times. Why should you cry this time? Oh, Mother Danelle, I'm frightened. Frightened? And tell me, why should you be frightened? I don't know, but when that door closed behind him, it seemed as if the waters of the sea were closing over. Oh, Mother Danelle, hold me close. Soon, Father Donahue, Eileen and I left the dancing and the fiddling behind and climbed the long path up to the top of the cliff so our eyes could see far out over the water. And all the time, Eileen kept crying that she'd never see Thomas again. That she'd never see Thomas again. Oh, oh Thomas. Oh, stop crying and saying those me. things you're saying, girl. It's tempting the devil to do his evil work. Oh, I haven't climbed this path for a minute. It's a little too steep for me, old bones. Thomas, where are you? Oh, now stop that, girl. Our Thomas has found so much copper and brass. It's taken him longer than he thought. Oh, Thomas wouldn't come back like he would. No, well, Paddy would if there was a shilling extra to be made, and he's talked Thomas into it with that sharp tongue of his. Ah, oh, the last dip. Ah, oh, now we'll see them. They're both weighed down with good fortune. Eileen! Eileen, stay away from the edge. You'll go over the cliff. Oh, Mother Danelle, to the west. Huh? To the west where they went. The water. Oh, Mother, that wind. Where did it come from? Out of the west where he was. But, but in all my years, such a wind has never been before. The water. Look at it swirling and tossing before the wind. It's dead. No. My daughter's dead. No, no. Stop saying that. He's not dead, my Thomas. Eileen. Eileen, come back here. Oh, that was a time, Father Donahue. The wind grew wilder and wilder. In a minute, the sea was pounding at the base of the cliff. And the girl shrieking she wanted to die with Thomas. And me fighting her back from the edge and praying to the good God to give me old arms the strength to hold her back until she came to her senses. Ah, none of us got a wink of sleep till the light of morning. Oh, that wind. I can hear it now. Snarling and talking. 
Where? The boat, the boat. Your son oh, to the west. Why, my son? Aye, aye, come on. Dead? No, no, the boat's coming and there's living hands on the oars. Come on. Oh, there's a scar on my knees. I thank you for their mercy. Mother Danelle, I heard someone say. Oh. Mother Danelle. Oh, Danelle. I the merciful God has brought them back. Oh. Come on, quick. They're trying to get into land. Hurry now. Oh, Mother Danelle, quickly. No. Don't, no, wait, child. Your shawl. Your shawl there. Now give oh. me your arm. Oh, my arm is trembling so I can hardly walk. Yes, yes, lean on me. Oh. Yes, yes, I'm moving fast as I can. It's hard. It's hard to get against its wind. It wind. Let him live. You bless it for the life of one. And I bless it for the life of two. Good neighbors. Good neighbors, let us through. My son. Let us through. Oh, I can see nothing. The waves and the dark. I need the UC. Yes. Yes, Mother Danelle. I see them. I see them. Where pointed out to me, girl? Where? Oh, over there. Follow my finger. Oh, oh Mary, they're yes. coming back. Yes, I see the boat. Oh, blessed boat. I see it. Praise God, I see it. One. There's only one. No. Oh. No, what are you saying? Thomas. Teddy. Mother Kate, come back. The waves. Uh, the girl's right. There's only one in the boat. The waves. The boat in. Oh, 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 oh no. No, I need wait for me. My son. Oh, yes, yes, forgive me. Come, I'll help you. Ah, the girl, I mean, good girl. Oh, which one? Which one? Thomas, I know it. Thomas, I know it. Yes, Thomas, the good Thomas, he lives. Stand aside, everybody. Let the widow Danelle and the girl through now. Let them through. Let me through. My son, my son, which one? Well, well, I'm back, Mother. Are you, are you pleased to see me? Harry. Stand back now. You, Paddy. Yes. Yes, me. Can't I got a right to live? Tell me. Tell me quick. Where, where is my son? Where's Thomas? Tell me, Paddy. Where is my Thomas? Where do you think he is, old woman? Dead at the bottom of the sea. Ladies and gentlemen... A deep breath would certainly be welcome to me and to you at this moment in our story of the sea. And in this intermission, before we go back to further developments in tonight's exciting Lights Out story, we have a young man here who seems to have a problem. I'll say I've got a problem. I can't get started any place. The Army tells me to come back when I built myself up. War plans tell me to come back when I put on some weight. I can't eat, I can't sleep. I'm jittery and tired out all the time. It's got me legs. Oh, come now, my friend. Don't give up so easily. Maybe all you need is more vitamin B and iron. You see, when you don't get enough vitamin B out of your food, you may lose your appetite, not eat all you need, or you may not get all the good out of what you do eat. Then, naturally, you lose weight, lose your pep and energy. And when you don't get enough iron from your food, you may be weak and pale, feel only half alive. Oh, but if I need more vitamin B and iron... Well, how can I get them? Try ironized yeast tablets. They're the famous two-way tonic that gives you both vitamin B and iron. Start taking pleasant little ironized yeast tablets tonight if more vitamin B and iron is what you need. Then see if pretty quick you aren't saying... Boy, oh boy, do I look husky with the swell pounds I've put on. And I feel swell, too. <laughs> or job, here I come. And I'm sure glad I tried those ironized yeast tablets. And now back to Lights Out, 
and the old woman's confession to the priest. I, Father Donahue, that was what he told me. My good Thomas was dead at the bottom of the sea. Dead. The good Thomas dead and Paddy. Paddy the evil from the life. Ah, oh, it wasn't right, Father. And in the days and nights that followed, I cried to God, Why did you do it? Why? Why did the sea take my dear Thomas from the boat and leave Paddy? Was there no reward on earth for goodness and sweetness of soul? And in the seventh night of my sorrow, there came an answer. I was lying on my bed. Outside, the sea was singing and whispering. My window was open, and I could hear the sea talking as I lay there crying. Crying from a lost house. Oh, Do not cry, Mother. Mother. I, I heard a voice. You heard me, Mother. Thomas's voice. Oh, no. No, it's some wildness in my weary head. Mother, I am so weary. You must listen. Oh, dear Scott, why do you do this to me? My son is dead. Dead in the sea. Why do you bring me the memory of his voice? Mother, mother, believe me. If I could only see you, I would believe. Oh, no. The horror the sea made of me. Wind and wave and grinding rock against my flesh. Oh, I wouldn't care, my son. Just let me see that it is you, not my own voice speaking in my head. Oh, Mother, you don't know what you ask. But if there is no other way, close your eyes until I give you a word to open them. I've... I've closed them. Now. Now open, Mother, and have no fear. I beg you. Oh. This was Thomas. Mother, why did he murder me? Murder? The sea was calm. We reached the pool where he set the copper and the brass lid. I stripped off my clothes and dove under. And when I tried to come up for another breath of air, oh, Mother, he wouldn't let me do it. Oh, no. With his hand, he held me under. My hands, they tore at his arm. But he held me down. Down until at last I screamed for mercy, and the water filled my mouth, my lungs, and killed me. My own brother killed me, and that is why I tore myself out of the sea. I want to know why he did it, mother. Why? I cannot rest in peace until I know and understand. You tell me. Oh, speak, mother. What gain could come to him for such a horror? I I do not know. Oh, believe me, my son. I do not know. Then I must go back. I cannot stand this pain. Oh, my good Thomas. Look at this, what was Thomas Donnell's face, mother. Look at it and give me your oath you will not tell my Eileen or my brother of this night. Oh, but I... Your oath, mother. 
They must not know. You hear me? They must not know. I swear it coming. Oh, merciful one, this pain. I go, mother. Where? Back to the sea. Oh, and, and will we will we ever meet again, my son? Yes. The day I find out why he made me drown, I will return, mother. I will return. Thomas, my son, come back. Oh, oh my son. My son. But he was gone, Father Donahue. Gone back to his nameless grave in the sea. Then, then it happened. Perry talked his way into the good graces of the girl. Simple little Eileen. What did she know of the evil of men? A devil Paddy and my good Thomas's Eileen. Ah, oh, took their life out of me. And made me long for the quiet of my grave. And then, then came the day of the wedding. Again, the fiddler was playing. Again, the good people of the islands were happy. I alone was sad, weeping. Weeping the cotton. Oh, Mother Donnell, why do you sit here apart from all the rest and weep? I, I'm not weeping, girl. For weeks you've been so sad. Can't you find a little joy in your heart for this day of... My marriage to your own son? My, my son, well, I do not love him as I did dear Thomas. May he rest in peace. But Thomas himself told Patty that if he died, he wished that Patty had care for me. And, M Mother Donnell, what is it? Your face so strange. Now he knows. I just remembered. Now he knows. <laughs> Who knows? What are you saying? <laughs> there you are, my little bride to be. <laughs> uh, why waste your wedding day with this old woman? Mother of mine, though she be, her face is sour enough to curdle milk. Come on away now. No, no, wait, Patty. Mother Donnell, you must tell me. What is it that makes you stare at Patty with such an awful ah, look? That's the look she's always had. <laughs> oh, look how the sun glints on the sea. Ah, it's a day for a king. And I'm a king marrying the girl I've always wanted. Come kiss me, Eileen. Kiss me so that all shall see me. Kissing the prettiest bride in all Ireland. No, please. Kiss me. Let the sky in the sky. Oh! Mother De Niro. What did you make that sound hey, for, old woman? What's going on around here? No, what is it? Who gave this? Now then. Speak up, Mother. Why did you shriek like that? The sea. What of the sea? What are you pointing your bony finger at out there? What are you... Look! At the water's edge! Say, what is... Something's coming out of the sea! I... Look! Yes. Something's coming out of yes, the sea! that's right. I, I see it now. Oh. It's a seal, oh. that's what it is, a seal! Oh. Where's the clever... It's not a seal! Huh? It's a man! Look! Man! Bones! Just bones! Let's get out of here! Eileen! Eileen, do not look! Do not look! Ah! Oh. Oh, blessed Mary, she's fainted. She will not see. What? What? What is it? I... I can't move. I cannot move. No. You cannot move, my brother. You cannot move. That... That, that voice. Bones and little flesh. And yet you know the voice. Thomas. Thomas. 
your brother Thomas come back again. No. Because now he knows. No. Now he knows. No. Knows what? Why you murdered me. Your flesh and blood. I heard it from your own lips. I... You wanted my Eileen always. I... That's why you did it. I... 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 Your clever tongue can no longer save your brother of mine. I have come a painful way to get you. No. No. No, you won't get me dead thing. No. I'll get away. I'll run. I'll run. And so he ran, Father Donahue. He turned and ran up, up the path that led to the top of the cliff. And behind him, slowly sobbing with the pain that tore at his dead bones, climbed my dead Thomas after him. And after Thomas, dragging my old bones, I went. Ah, oh, for they were my sons. And I had to see that right was done. Up, up. Up until at last Paddy stood on the very edge, the sea 500 feet below, shrieking, yelling, and wailing. He stood there shrieking at that horrible thing. No, no, nothing. Stay back. Stay back. You bones of Bill, stay back. I back. come for no. you, my brother. No, no. I come no. for you. No. <laughs> he fell. He fell. Mother, see, he, he didn't get me. Those rotten bones gave way beneath him. He didn't get me, Mother. He, Mother, what are you going to do? Mother. Mother! Over the cliff, Paddy went, turning and twisting, and into the sea where the water covered him over. When the others of the village came up there at last, I told them that the old bones of Thomas had done it. Had clutched Paddy close to and thrust him over. Oh, Father Donahue, listen. It was I that gave that final push that sent the evil son of mine to his death. Thomas tried and failed before he had his last measure of revenge. So I did it, Father. I, I gave Paddy the new life, and I gave him death. Oh. Is there any forgiveness? In heaven for what I did. Well, Mr. Obler, again the dead return? <laughs> well, again I say I don't know. I'll tell you an amazing story, though, that I know is true. Have you ever heard of Marjorie? Oh, sure. Butter substitute. <laughs> no, no, no. Marjorie's not any ration book. He's one of the most famous spiritualistic mediums at the end of the 19th century. And now, what about Marjorie? Well, during the last 75 years, there have been two psychic mediums who have shared the honor of puzzling psychical researchers. Dee Dee Holm was one, and a lady by the name of Marjorie was the other. Now, Marjorie was the wife of a distinguished surgeon who claimed that she could conjure up the spirit of a dead brother. 
his brother could ask questions by means of raps, ringing bells, chimes, bugles, write in nine languages, although Marjorie knew only one, move furniture around the room and conjure up roses and live birds and speak in his own voice through Marjorie's vocal cords. Now, in 1924, the magazine, Scientific American, offered a prize of $2,500 to the first person who could conjure up ghostly effects. Marjorie entered the contest. The committee, well, the committee that investigated her disagreed completely. Three of the gentlemen said yes, and three other gentlemen said no. The London Society for Scientific Research heard about it and entered the picture and investigated Marjorie and again. All sorts of dissension. Now, in spite of many further scientific investigations and work of many individual researchmen, no one seems to know whether or not Marjorie actually was psychic. But there's no question that the facts show that the lady certainly proved some amazing demonstrations of, well, of what were apparently voices and figures and fingerprints and other manifestations of the dead. Well, are we to have some more ghosts next week, Mr. Obler? <laughs> no, not ghosts. It's a play about Paris before the New Disorder. It's a story about two college men on the loose in Paris. But, as usual, that's next week. Yes, Lights Out will come to you again next Tuesday at this same time. Be sure to listen to Arch Obler's amazing story, The Ball. And if you need more vitamin B and iron, be sure to try Ironized Yeast. The one and only Ironized Yeast. With the big letters IY on the package and on each tablet. It is later than you think. Stay tuned for Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Let's start in the year 1949, the same year that Martin and Lewis were signed by Paramount Pictures as comedy relief for the film My Friend Irma. Dean Martin was absolutely thrilled to be out of New York City, a place he had developed a lifelong discomfort for. And he also wasn't a fan of tall buildings either. Martin mostly avoided elevators due to claustrophobia. He didn't like having to climb multiple flights of stairs. And uh, even when his success allowed him to lease an apartment in a Manhattan high-rise, he chose one on the third floor. He liked Los Angeles and the fact that it had few tall buildings. And by the way, their agent, A.B. Greshler, negotiated for them one of Hollywood's best deals. They received $75,000 between them for their films with Hal Wallace, a respectable film salary in the 40s. They were also free to do one outside film a year. And now let's listen into the episode where they welcome guest William Bendix. The National Broadcasting Company brings you transcribed the new Martin and Lewis show. Our guest tonight, William Bendix, and featuring Flo McMichael, the Martin Gales, Michael Roy, Dick Stabile and his orchestra, and starring Dean Martin. Everybody loves somebody sometimes. Everybody falls in love somehow. And Jerry Lewis. You don't 
don't have no music for classical singers. <laughs> Now, Jerry... Well, it's not my fault. The orchestra can't play what I sing. Well, of course they can't play what you sing. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> Who sings like this? <laughs> well, well, what was that? Well, I know what it is. I made it up. <laughs> you made it up when? This morning I was singing in, in the shower and suddenly the water turned cold and I went... Bee, 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 <laughs> and I made it up. Ah, uh, Jerry, I wish you'd stop trying to horn in on my singing. Horn in? Me? Look here, Dean Martin. I'm just as important in this team as you are. You're the one who grabs the spotlight. Always trying to be a big man and push me out. I'm getting sick of it, do you hear? Sick, 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 sick. Sick. Do you hear, and Dean? What? I think I got a fever. <laughs> okay, Jerry, you got your laugh. Now, will you step back and just let me sing? Okay, Dean. What are you gonna... T- what, what numbers are it gonna be? Well, it's a romantic number, and I really ought to have a pretty girl to sing it to, you know, sort of get me in the mood. I'll be a girl if you promise to respect me. <laughs> you won't be satisfied till you break my heart. You'll never satisfy Till a teardrop starts I try to shower you With love and kisses But all I ever get from you Is nagging, bragging My poor heart is sagging The way you toss my heart around Oh, crying shame Well, I'll bet you wouldn't like it If I did the same You're only happy Tearing all my dreams apart You won't be satisfied Till you break my heart Oh, you won't be satisfied Till you break my heart You're never satisfied Till a teardrop starts I try to shower you with love and kisses But all I ever get from you Is nagging and bragging My poor heart is sagging The way you toss my heart around Oh, crying shame Well, I'll bet you wouldn't like it If I did the same You're only happy Tearing all my dreams apart You won't be satisfied Until you break my heart Yes, folks, it's that new comedy team, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, who last week broadcast their first radio show over NBC. We find them now still somewhat dazed and awed by it all, sitting in their apartment, poring over their newspaper reviews and fan mail. Hey, Dean, did you read what it says about us in this paper? What does it say, Jerry? Well, the column said you were great in this newspaper clipping. Just listen to what this critic says about me. Jerry Lewis is one of our newer comedians, and in my opinion, he's a very funny and had a nose. Oh. <laughs> and he, but he's a very playful. Wow. 
Well, what did he say? He thought I was awful. Oh, Jerry, snap out of it. It's just one man's opinion. But how can he think I was so bad? I'm loaded with talent. Gee, I can tell poems like, There was an old man named McGill Who ran up and down every hill When someone inquired, Don't that make you feel tired? He said, Nah. <laughs> and, and, and I can tell jokes. On the way to the studio tonight, I met a botanist. Really, Jerry? A botanist? What does a botanist do? He shows on buttons. <laughs> And I can do imitations, too. A seal. Uh, girl seal. Uh, boy and girl seal. Uh, uh. And I can sing, too. Give me the road. The wide, winding highway. That's where I'll throw. Hi, the beat no byway. I'll travel along. Jerry. You know something, Dean? What? The critic was right. <laughs> Look, Jerry, forget what the critic said. No, Dean, I- I'm-, I'm only in your way. You should have a classy-looking partner instead of me. Look at me, skinny, undernourished, homely, awkward, slumped over, no chest. I'm a mess. No, Jerry, you're not a mess. Why, you're, you're, you're handsome, uh, well, you're manly, uh, you're fascinating. You know, I never realized what a mess you really are. <laughs> Jerry, this is all unimportant. The important thing is right now we've got to figure out to who we can get for our guest this week. It's not so tough. We got Bob Hope last week. Well, don't forget, Bob Hope did us a big favor. He came on for free. After all, Gregory Peck and Ronald Coleman and all those big stars, they get $5,000 for a guest appearance. 5000 How much have we got to spend? Well, I got about eight bucks. I got 35 cents. Well, there's only one thing to do. Call up Bob Hope again. <laughs> Or, or maybe or maybe we can persuade some other big star to do us a favor, too. No, these big stars are hard to find, Jerry. They have private phone numbers, big walls around their houses, and they're always going out of town to get away from it all. I don't care how big they are. I can find them. I have a system. I have a system I used one time when I was trying to find Errol Flynn. Yeah, what'd you do? Well, I just said, now, if I were Errol Flynn, where would I go? And I went there. <laughs> Well, Jerry, did you find him? No, but I sure had fun. <laughs> oh, I forgot, Dean. We got a telegram this morning. Telegram? Let's see it. Listen to this, Jerry. Our problems are all solved. Here's, here's what it says. Heard your first show. Congratulations. Very anxious to be your guest star this week. Important reason. We'll explain when I see you. Signed, William Bendix. Gee, William Bendix. He's a big star. Why would he want to be on our show? It says P.S. for money, of course. What else? <laughs> I wonder what Mr. Bendix meant by saying it was important. Come on, Dean. Let's go down NBC and we can ask him. Not so fast. Let me take a look at you first. Stand up. You wash your hands? Yes, partner. Wash your face? Yes, sir. Behind your ears? Look, I'm just going to a broadcast. I'm not going to get married. <laughs> anyway, what about you? Did you bathe? Well, of course. I take a bath every day. You take a bath every day. Well, of course. Oh, Dean, I'm so unworthy of you. Well, let's go, Jerry. Come in. Who is it? 
It's the maid. I wanted to ask you for a job. You want to ask us for a job? What kind of a job? Well, now that you have your radio show, I thought you might need a secretary. I've been going to secretarial school for six months, and I just graduated. But we don't need a secretary, miss. You don't need a secretary. That's fine. Here I go to school, and I buy papers and books and pencils, and I learn to be a secretary, and now you don't need a secretary. So I won't have anything to do, so I'll go out in the hall and sit down, and the manager will come up to me, and he'll say, what are you doing loafing in the hall? And I'll say, I'm not loafing. And he'll say, oh, talking back to the boss. And I'll say, I'm not talking back. And he'll say, don't raise your voice to me, and I'll say something nasty to him, and he'll fire me and all because you don't need a secretary. <laughs> It's people like you that cause unemployment. Well, maybe we can try you out for typing scripts or something. All right, okay, you're hired. Now, just a minute. Now, what's the matter? I'm not going to be rushed into anything. <laughs> I want to think it over for a while. All right, here, miss, take this page and make six copies on the typewriter. Typewriter? What's a typewriter? <laughs> you're a secretary and you don't know what a typewriter is? No, but I'm willing to learn. Well, what is it? Well, listen closely. A typewriter is a thing you put on a desk, and it's black. Only sometimes it's blue. And once in a while, they're red. And you put a piece of paper in the thing up there, and on the front, it's got those little things with printing on them that you hit. Tap, 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 until a little bell rings. Bing! That's a typewriter. <laughs> Well, miss, do you want to try out as our secretary or don't you? Well, first I have to make sure that you two are perfect gentlemen. Could you give me any references? <laughs> references? Look, lady, we're hiring you, and I want you to know that any insinuation about our character is strictly derogatory on your part because people that know well enough or know that a gentleman knows his place. Whether or not it's forbidden, maybe a man just doesn't pause long enough to know whether he feels right from wrong, but I'm sure that anyone that isn't right will continue to say so. Come on, Jerry, let's go. We'll see you later, miss. Isn't this wonderful, Jerry? A couple of weeks ago, we came to Hollywood and we were nobodies. Remember how impressed we were with this big NBC building? Yeah. Come on, let's go in. I wonder where we can find William Bendix. Shh, Jerry. Not so loud. All the doors along this corridor lead to studios where radio programs are rehearsing. Oh, okay, Dean. I'll just peek in this first door. Maybe Mr. Bendix will be in here. Hey, Dean, what show was that? Pepper Young. William Bendix wouldn't be in there. Here, let's try this next studio. Hey, this is a bright one. Look at all the light. Please, please, there's a television show going on in here. But I thought... I don't care what you thought. Now get out of here. Now listen. And take your puppet with you. <laughs> Why, I ought to go back in there and hit him right in his nose calling me a puppet. I ought to... Jerry, Jerry, quiet or I'll drop your strings. Now, let's look in this dressing room here, Jerry. Okay, Dean. What was that noise? Well, Phil Harris is still... Phil Harris is still what? Nothing. It's Phil Harris is still. (laughs) 
Now, Jerry, we're not doing so good on this side of the hall. Let's try the other side. Son of a gun. Son of a gun. Son of a gun. Son of a gun. Well, who was that? President Truman rehearsing his next speech. <laughs> No use, Jerry. We'll, we'll never find William Bendix this way. Oh, you hoo You hoo What's that? Hello there. Huh? Could I take a minute of your time? Hmm? You could use my head to crack walnuts. <laughs> hey, Dean, Dean. This dame is a siren, isn't she? Wow. <laughs> a siren? Wow, she's the whole fire engine. Wow. You are Dean Martin, aren't you? The singer? Yes, but... Uh, yeah, he's Dean Martin, the singer, and I'm Jerry Lewis, the comedian. Well, two big, handsome men. Well. Two handsome men? She must be looking at me twice. <laughs> oh, Mr. Martin, I've got a lot of wonderful new songs for you to sing on your program. I'm a song plugger. I get people to sing songs on the air. I write a lot of the songs myself. Hey, here's a terrific new number I just finished. It's called Tumbling Along Through the Tumbling Tumbleweeds by the Alamo Along the Rio Grande Where the Buffalo Roam by the Old Corral on the Texas Plains. <laughs> it's a western-type western tune. western-type tune, sure. <laughs> Well, bust my britches. Bust them? Look, Skinny, you're doing well to keep them up. <laughs> keep them up, Yeah. <laughs> Look, miss, I write songs, too. Oh, you do? Sure, last year I had a big hit. It was called, I'm Head Over Heels in Love, and I Look Better That Way. <laughs> yeah, and he's working on a new one. Uh, Malcolm, Malcolm, pass the talcum. You're the chap for me. got a song done in a modern Shakespearean rhythm. Yeah, well, what's it called? To bebop or not to bebop. <laughs> Sounds intriguing. How does it go? Well, I'll sing it for you. Oodly oo coo coo ah ah. Oodly oo coo 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 ah ah. Miss. Yes. Are you for real? <laughs> Miss, we we really have to leave. I tell you what. If I promise to sing one of your songs on the air. Will you let us go? All right. I'll be waiting. Goodbye. Now, Dean Martin sings Far Away Places. Far Away Places with strange sound and Far away over the sea Those far away places With strange sound and names Are calling, calling me Going to China Or maybe science I want to see for myself Those 
those faraway places I've been reading about in a book that I took from a shelf. I start getting restless whenever I hear the whistle. Of a train. I pray for the day I can get underway and look for those castles in Spain. Oh, they call me a dreamer. Well, maybe I am, but I know. With strange sounding names Holland Holland Me Okay, but we better go quietly. The red broadcasting light is on. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, to listen again next week to The Life of Riley starring William Bendix. Jerry, here, here he comes off stage. Yeah. Hey, Mr. Bendix, we want to see you. You said you were very anxious to be on our program. Well, yeah, I am. Come on to my dressing room and I'll tell you what's on my mind. Now, uh, before we start discussing terms, let me get you two straight. Now, uh, which is uh, which? Well, I'm Dean Martin, the singing half of the team. Oh, good. Well, I won't have to laugh at you. And, and I, I'm, I'm Jerry Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the funny half of the team. Yeah. <laughs> I tell the jokes. With a kisser like that, you got to tell jokes, too? What's wrong with the way I look? Do you always comb your hair like that? Well, Jerry's head is a little unusual. You see, it's higher in the back than it is in the front, and, oh. and it tilts down, so the hair grows that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a load of coal sliding out of a dump truck. <laughs> hey, I didn't like that. Come on outside and say that. Yeah, why should I? Because there might be someone out there that didn't hear it. <laughs> Now, Jerry, take it easy. Really, Bill, Jerry's a swell guy. Oh, sure, sure, I know that. I, I was only kidding. I, I know he's a swell guy. Ah, <laughs> uh, you're just saying that to make me feel good. That's right. <laughs> Jerry didn't mean anything, Bill. Well, we both admire you very much. You know, we're going to make a picture. Uh, my friend Irma over at Paramount and our producer, Hal Wallace, suggested we get some acting advice from you. Well, it's hard work, fellas. You've got to give up pleasure, give up dancing and smoking and gambling and even girls. You think you can do it, Dean? Well, I'll certainly try, but what about Jerry? Well, with him, it's a little harder. We have to undo the theory of evolution. <laughs> Listen here, I'm just as far away from the apes as you guys. I just took a shortcut. <laughs> well, we'd sure be glad to have you, Bill. 
Yeah, and we've had some of the top men in the business as our guests. Well, look, you, you just started last week, and your guest was Bob Hope. What do you mean you had some of the top men? Bob Hope isn't two people. Have you ever tried to ad lib with him? <laughs> let's, uh, let's get to the point, fellas. Uh, what are you paying for guest stars, huh? Well, we have a novelty show, and since... NBC wanted us to do something different in radio. Yeah? We're not paying anything. <laughs> well, that's a little too different, don't you think so? But, Bill, remember, you, you can't take it with you. Well, I can. I'm only going as far as the bank. <laughs> well, after all, Bill, what's money between friends? Money is so crass and crude and common and vulgar. Yeah, so from now on, let's continue this discussion on a high intellectual plane. Intellectual, yeah. Shall we? Yeah, okay. <laughs> but when you come to money, you'll still be talking to a bum. Well, that's all right. We'll be talking about bum money. <laughs> Nothing, huh? You see, the, the, the ladies and gentlemen don't seem to understand. You see, Bill Bendix said something about bum and the money. He wanted it so he'd be a bum. And Dean said bum money. It was more or less like a joke. And whenever we have money in a script, Dean always says this joke and people laugh. They scream, it's so funny. And look how they're staring at me. Well, I don't understand why you're making such a fuss about money, Bill. In your telegram, you sounded like you were anxious to be on our show. Yeah, well, I had something in mind. I'll tell you. I'll come on your program and for free on just one condition. Oh, we just got to have you, Bill. We'll do anything. Yeah, anything. Absolutely. Well, I'm starting a campaign to play handsome romantic parts on the screen. All you got to do is introduce me as a very handsome guy. See, a matinee idol, a great lover type, see? Bye. Bye. Wait a minute. <laughs> well, look, fellas, you got to help me. In my next picture, the garbage collector murder case, Paramount wants me to play the detective who doesn't get the girl. Real rough-and-tumble guy with no feminine appeal, eh? I don't know, Bill. Truthfully, I don't think anyone would believe you as a great lover on the screen. I would. You would, Jerry? Sure, but I'm only 23 years old. What do I know? Well, look, fellas, they're going to give the romantic lead in this picture to Ray Milland if we don't do something. I'm perfect for the lover type. Let's face it. Who is it? It's me. Hey, it's the maid from our apartment. Yes, yeah, she told me to type up this page, so I thought I... Oh, William Bendix. Look out, catch her, somebody. She's going to faint. Stand back, stand back. What are you going to do? I want to watch her fall. This is the first time I ever swooned a dame. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to faint. I'm just weak from the thrill of being so close to you. Your beautiful golden hair. Your gorgeous eyes. Your wonderful soft voice. Bring her out of it. Slap her face. You touch that girl and I'll break your arm. <laughs> I feel weak. Everything seems hazy and blurred. It looks like a load of coal sliding down a dump Jerry, truck. get out of there! <laughs> well, this settles it. Paramount's been telling me I'm not a great lover type. You saw what I just did to that girl. Give me that phone. Atta boy, Bill. Here. Yeah, give it here. <laughs> Dial quick, you're running out of time. Hurry up. <laughs> Hello, Paramount. Give me the casting director. Hello, Mr. Michael John. This is Errol Bendix talking. 
You know that next picture of mine, the garbage collector murder case? Well, I just called to tell you that I'm going to play the Ray Milland part. And I don't want any... What gives me the idea? I can. Here's a very good reason. I just swooned a dame in cold blood. Yeah, me. No, absolutely not. I never touched the stuff. Bill, Bill, let me talk to him. Maybe I can reason with him. Yeah, right. Hello, Mr. Michael John. You heard what Mr. Bendix said, and that's final. He wants to play the star in the garbage collector murder case. No, he don't want to play the detective. Really? You will? Ah. Ha! Hey, ah! Okay, goodbye. What happened, Jerry? Am I going to play the romantic lead? Well, no. Ray Milan's still going to play that. Oh. Well, I'm still the detective then, huh? No, they're going to put Alan Ladd in that part. Well, then what am I going to play? You're the garbage collector. (laughs) What a revolting development this is. I think we're two of the luckiest guys in the whole world, don't you? Ah, uh, Jerry, it's three o'clock in the morning. Stop talking and go to sleep. Hmm? Okay, Dean, I'll stop talking. <laughs> Dean. Yeah? I know I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> but I can't help thinking of poor William Bendix driving that trash collection truck. You think it was my fault he got that part? Jerry, for the last time, I gotta get some sleep. We gotta be at the studio at seven o'clock in the morning. Now, keep quiet. Okay, Dean. Now what? Somebody outside. Yeah, and I'm going to find out who it is. Hey, what's going on down there? What do you think's going on? I'm rehearsing. You've just heard transcribed The Martin and Lewis Show, produced by Robert L. Redd and written by Dick McKnight, Ray Allen, Chet Castellan, and Norman Sullivan. William Bendix appeared through the courtesy of Prell Shampoo and may be heard on his own radio program, The Life of Riley. Tune in to your NBC station each Sunday evening at this same time for The Martin and Lewis Show. This is NBC, the National Broadcasting Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Inner Sanctum, followed by A Day in the Life of Dennis Day. Thanks to Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.